Welcome everyone to the next episode of the Light of Life podcast. I'm your host, Naomi, and today I'm here with Gio. Gio, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, uh, my name is Michael Strain. Uh, my camp name is Gio, uh, camp with Camp Del Corazon and the uh, Camp Del Corazon's PACE program. Thank you, Michael. And um, thank you so much for wanting to come onto the podcast. And you have a very unique story. Um, you had to have a heart transplant um, after having a heart attack. And so my first question is, when did you find out that you needed to have a heart transplant? So to best describe this, I need to uh, take a little bit of a step back. <laughs> um, uh, I was uh, 34 at the time, and I was out on a long mountain bike ride with some friends. And I was having a little trouble, but it wasn't a lot of trouble. And, um, you know, I finished the ride and then me and my, some friends decided to go back to another friend's house for dinner. So we did that. And in the middle of dinner, my chest started hurting. Now I'd had chest pains in the past. And when I'd had them checked out by a doctor, they told me that they were intercostal cramps or, 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 uh, yeah, we'll just call them cramps or uh, or inflammation in the muscles that are between your ribs. And so, you know, I'm 34. I'm actually really healthy at this time. I'm really in shape. So I was like, oh, yeah, that's what it is. And usually um, when this had happened in the four and it, before, and it didn't happen very often, uh, they just kind of went away. And I was like, okay, great. But this time they didn't go away. They went, they got worse. And my girlfriend at the time said, you know what, let's just go home. Maybe you can lie down in bed and rest and maybe you'll feel better. So we went home and after about 10 or 15 minutes of being home, she came into to our bedroom and I was lying on the floor just like in pain. And she's like, do you need me to call the ambulance? And I was like, yeah, I think you need to call the ambulance. Ambulance comes. They put me in the, they, I don't remember this, but they determined while I was there that I was having a heart attack which was like, I'm 34 years old, what the heck? And so they put me in the ambulance and I lived in Pasadena, California, and I knew the area pretty well. So I'm sitting, I'm lying in the ambulance, ambulance, they're doing those standard like heart attack things. They give me nitroglycerin, they give me 100% oxygen. And I'm, I'm lying in the back thinking, thinking about what streets they're taking me to the hospital in. Um, the last thing I remember was arriving at the hospital. The next thing I remember of the real world was waking up and them telling me, now this was uh, July 30th of 2008. And the next thing that I remember is them waking me up in a hospital and telling me that it is September 8th. Wow. And them saying, I said, what happened? They said, you had a massive heart attack. Um, I was attached to a machine. Uh, most people know a left ventricular assist device. I was attached to a, a bivad, which was uh, both sides. It's a left ventricular assist device and a right ventricular assist device. And they said, this machine is a bridge to transplant. You're going to need a heart transplant. Your heart was too damaged by the heart attack. And uh, a lot of stuff happened while I was uh, away. <laughs> so to speak. 
Um, but that makes the story a lot, lot longer. Uh, so when I woke up at the, in the hospital is when they said that I needed a heart transplant. Wow. Wow. So you were like, you were basically like in a coma for a couple months until you woke up again. I was in a again. medically induced coma for over five weeks. Wow. 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 And so, and so you had to be put on, I'm curious, like you had to be put on the list for a heart transplant and you had to wait for a new heart. So basically what happened is, uh, one of the, one of the many, many things that happened while I was in that coma. And one of the reasons why it took so long for me to be taken out of it was that somewhere during that time, despite me being under essentially quarantine, like for anybody to come into my hospital room, they had to, you know, basically decontaminate themselves. Um, I ended up getting a uh, staph infection in my right leg. Um, and so when I woke up, they couldn't put me on the, uh, on the heart transplant list because I had an active infection. Mm-hmm. And so the first three weeks that I was awake in the hospital, um, they, were you know an infectious disease doctor would come into my my hotel hospital room once a day once every day they'd look at the numbers because they had me on triple coverage of antibiotics and it was really it was a real it was problematic for me because i'm allergic to penicillin i'm allergic to, to, to several antibiotics and so um it took them a while to find a combination that would work and in fact one of the ones that they gave me vancomycin i developed an allergy to it i was in the hospital um, they, uh, I had a bunch of wounds uh, on my body and I remember the nurse coming in and, you know, they were, they were giving them to me intravenously and she gave me my bank of mice and, uh, medicine and she was, uh, tending to some of my wounds and I was like, Hey, can I scratch? And she said, Oh yeah, sure. Fine. So I started scratching and I couldn't stop. And when the nurse came back to look, she was like, Oh my God. And I had hives all over my leg. So they had to find yet another antibiotic to give me. Luckily, I mean, that was a mild, mild allergy. So it wasn't that big of a deal. But so that went on for a little over three weeks and, but uh, basically three weeks. Um, though I'll tell you, I was in the, the CTICTU, the cardiothoracic. ICU, it seemed like years, like just three weeks. It just seemed like so long when I was there. But finally on uh, September 23rd, they said, okay, we've got the, your viral load or your infectious infection load is down, is basically zero now. We can start working to put you on this, on the list. Um, the transplant coordinator came into my room on the 24th and said, I got you on the list. I said, all right, great. And, you know, I sort of mentally taking the first steps of preparing myself to be just waiting for a while. Um, but that didn't happen. Uh, she called my room. That was about, she came into my room about 9 a.m. to tell me I was on the list. And she called my room around 3.30 in the afternoon to tell me they had found a heart for me. Wow. Wow. So just within a couple hours, they found a heart. Yeah, I usually, I use the number seven hours just to say mm-hmm. that I was on the list. I was only on the list for seven hours. Wow. I didn't get the, trans- I didn't get the, uh, 
Actually, I got the dates wrong. <laughs> I had my transplant on the 21st, the 24th, and so I didn't get the actual surgery until the next day. Uh, so all that happened on September 23rd. Mm. Wow. Wow. So, so you had a, so, so we ended up having a heart transplant and, um, you know, uh, with a heart transplant, uh, I've heard like one of the biggest risks of the aftermath is, um, rejection because, um, uh, because since it's like a, it's, since it's an organ from like a different body then, uh -huh. uh, yeah. And I'm yeah. curious, has, has rejection ever happened to you, Michael? Uh, you know, uh, I've been incredibly fortunate. Uh, I'm just over 14 years with my heart now, and I have never had even an inkling of rejection. Um, the way I was at USC, uh, Keck Medical System, uh, Medical Hospital, and um, for the first year, first year, 13 months, I guess, I had nine heart biopsies. And the way they do it, they their, their protocol is eight biopsies in the first year, and then nothing more unless you really need it. Uh, and I have not had a, a heart biopsy in 13 years. I haven't had a hint of rejection. The way that they generally, they started doing this test called Olimap in the last three or four years. But before that, I was mostly just getting blood tests where they would test essentially my, just test my, test my, uh, tacrolimus level, which is one of the medications that I have to take. And they would give me a yearly stress test. Um, and, uh, since I started doing the stress tests, I've been above average, like for a normal person, my, my results have been on that. So I've had, had is any issue. I'm very fortunate to not have any issues with, uh, rejection at all. Wow. That's, that's really good. Uh, I'm really, uh, it's, you have a really inspiring story. It's, uh, just like, uh, just one moment has like complete, can just completely change your whole life. Yeah, I really did. Yeah. Has has your heart transplant, since you had to go through all this, uh, has, has your heart transplant brought on new challenges you haven't had before? Uh, yeah, it absolutely has, um, both physical and mental. Um, as I said, um, I was very athletic before that, but I... You know, I was in a, a medically induced coma for uh, five over five weeks, and when I woke up in the hospital, um, I couldn't walk, I couldn't stand, I couldn't stand, sit up in bed, I couldn't even um, swallow because I had been intubated for so long. So I went from being very athletic to being I lost forty pounds and weighed a hundred and two pounds um I, you know i was nothing i was a little and um being in the icu for a long time is mentally difficult mm -hmm. um it's loud it's bright they do not let you sleep because they're giving you blood tests they're giving you um breathing exercises and you know, there's always stuff going on to other people, mm -hmm. you know, CTICU, there's lung patients in there too. And they have some devices that, they, that mm -hmm. they use for them that are incredibly loud. Um, when I finally had my transplant, 
you know, when you're in a medically induced coma, you're not, it's not sleep. Yeah. In, in the classic sense. Um, and when I, I never, I didn't essentially did not sleep after they brought me out of the coma too. And when I finally had my transplant surgery, um, I had my surgery on a Wednesday, I believe. And they had to physically shake me, wake me up on Saturday. Mm. Well, after the sedation had, had worn off. Wow. Uh, and that's how, you know, short on sleep I was. Mm-hmm. And when they woke me up, I just wanted to sleep more. Was, um, so, you know, but all, from a physical standpoint, I was in the hospital for 79 days. And I know you're not supposed to do this, but I walked out of the hospital. <laughs> Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, unfortunately, I also walked out of there with some moderately severe mental health issues as well. Yeah. Um, I kind of went a little crazy being in the, the ICU. Um, and when I was comatose, it's not just oblivion, darkness. It was hell. Um, yeah. And so I kind of walked out of the hospital with PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, that lasted for many years. It's only in the last few years, three, four to five years, probably that it's really calmed down for me. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't been able to, you know, get back to the uh, level of athleticism that I have been, that I was at. Um, one of the things that happens when you have a heart transplant is they uh, they cut your vagus nerve, which makes sense. The, the vagus nerve is the major nerve that goes into your heart. They cut it. One of the things that it does is it regulates your heart rate. So a couple things that happen is you run hot. Your heart rate is always high. And when you go to exercise, it's high, but it's not high enough. So, like, if you're trying to run, your muscles get short of oxygen pretty much instantaneously because your heart isn't beating fast enough to get the oxygen to it. So um, cardio cardio exercise is tough. And I've worked at it, but bottom line it is that I, I, I haven't had any any issues with, with my heart since, mm-hmm. since the transplant. And mental health-wise, I'm doing well now. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that, Gio. And, um, you know, um, I can I can really relate to you uh, in terms of like in terms of like PTSD and how challenging the hospital is. Uh, It's it it is a really uh, traumatizing experience. And I would like to mention, you know, you're the very first one that's really uh, brought up like how 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 difficult uh, uh, being in the hospital can be. uh, for anyone, uh, and, um, and, and, and yeah, like everything you said, uh, like, you know, like, machines beeping off, uh, it's really, you just don't get, like, really any sleep, I can, I can definitely relate, uh, to that as well, and, um, and yeah, the hospital takes a toll, like, physically and mentally too and i'm really glad you brought that up because uh we have we we haven't talked i haven't talked about that too much yet oh i'm more than happy to talk more about it because yeah 
one of the th- I realized after I left the hospital um, that I was psychotic when I was in the hospital. And mm-hmm. when you talk about what the the literal definition of psychosis is, is that you can't tell the difference between what is real and what is not real. And that was absolutely where I was. I could not tell the difference. I remember my parents coming to come visit me one evening and I had been having a nightmare and I woke up and I was confused. I thought there was people in the back of my room and, you know, they ended up just having to leave because I was so upset. And I was still intubated at the time and I couldn't communicate with them. And I, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, and it's, it's not just that it doesn't get talked about is that the, sometimes I feel like the, 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 the providers, it's not something they take into account. They're so hyper-focused on the physical that they don't realize or don't care. Mm-hmm. I don't know. That's kind of a bad thing to say that you're kind of losing your mind. Yeah. They just kind of give you out of van and forget about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, the the hospital really just tends to focus on like the physical aspect of therapy and not too much the mental and um it wasn't until like maybe three three or four years later I really started to have like the symptoms and signs of PTSD like like you said I was having nightmares flashbacks about the hospital and 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 yeah I think you, you you mentioning psychosis is 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 really important because um uh because that's kind of that that, that's kind of uh, that's kind of a key factor to ptsd you just um because if because if you're in a flashback it's it's uh uh, you feel like you're just right there again like in the hospital experiencing it all over again and yeah i've always described ptsd to other people as being in a constant state of fight or flight yeah Mm mm-hmm I remember the the most, you know, there have been times, you know, you get out of it and you're sort of like, well, am I just making a big deal out of nothing? Or, and I always, I always think about this one thing and it's kind of minor, but given that it was like 10 feet, 10 years after the fact, is I'd gone into a Starbucks to get, um, some iced tea. Cause that's basically, I don't really drink coffee. And I was standing there waiting for my drink and like the espresso machine started making this alarm that sounded to me exactly like one of the alarms I heard mm. in the hospital. And I was like, oh, that sounds like that. And I stood there for a couple seconds and then I realized that I was clenching my hands mm. really hard. Yeah. And I was like, maybe I should just step out for right now until they make that alarm go away. Yeah. And. I was like, okay, yeah, that's still a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I've um, uh, with um, with 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 PTSD. I just um, it was really like uh, difficult. Uh, kind kind of like what you said to hear like alarms going off, and it's also yeah. it was also I've noticed now. I I didn't link it at the time, but I'm pretty sure. Uh, when I was younger, I used to get really, really scared at like sirens, uh, uh, sirens, like with a fire truck or an ambulance, I would just get really scared. And I, and I, and and I'm, um, and I, and and I think that that may have been a link to just my PTSD and, um, yeah, yeah, I, it, it makes sense. mm -hmm. You've been in the hospital since you were little. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, 
So Gio, I'm so glad we brought so much awareness to, to uh, some really important things. Um, what is your advice to people who have been in your position? I have a couple, um, a couple pieces of advice. The first is do as much as you can to educate yourself. You are going to be the best advocate for your health care. And if you have a good team, they're going to appreciate that you understand what's going on as much as you do with your body. So if you go in and, you know, are able to ask real questions and, um, advocate for yourself that's the way you can get your best care and if you have a um a good team uh they'll be open to you advocating for yourself and the other thing is it goes along with the mental health stuff is please get help um Mm -hmm. i've seen health heart transplant patients sort of fall off care um because they weren't taking care of themselves um, because they weren't taking care of their mental health because either culturally or, you know, the way they were raised or they just didn't think it would help. And don't, do not be afraid to reach out and find help. There's lots of different ways to do it, so there's no excuse not to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that. That's really important advice. And... um you're also uh, the director of PACE. Uh, did this experience of needing a heart transplant after a heart attack motivate you to start getting involved um, um, with, the, um, with the heart community and meeting people who have all different kinds of heart disease? It did. Um, I remember my, um, the year after I, um, had my transplant, I got motivated and raised a bunch of money for the Donut Donut Life Walk, Run Walk. And, you know, for me, after doing that, my my friends and my family were really generous and I was really proud. I think I raised like $5,000 as a single person. But what ended up happening, I was like, well, I don't really know where this money is going. You know, it's okay, raise awareness for Donut Life, but that's that, that's not a very tactile, like it's not a very solid, it's just money going into the ether as far as I was concerned and I needed something else. Um, a few things sort of converged together. Um, whereas I always, I felt this need to do something and there was this show called ER and in their last season, they had a episode about this organization called Camp Del Corazon. Now ER takes place in Chicago. I'm in California, but Camp Del Corazon is also in California. And so I had intentions to, to volunteer there. And, but I had a full-time job and it takes a time commitment that I wasn't necessarily Programmed, I would say, to 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 sacrifice at that point in my life. Um, but a little bit of serendipity is a friend of mine had invited me to go rock climbing around one Halloween in Joshua Tree, and so there 
I met a guy. I was I was like sitting at the campfire and I heard a guy talking over at the table where all the food was set up. And I remembered Camp Del Corazon and I thought it sounded like that. Maybe that's what he was talking about. So I went up there and I talked to him. And he's like, yeah. And his name was Quick Draw. That's his camp name. And he was super motivated. And um, so we talked about it and you're like, yeah, I'm totally going to get you into this. We need, we need people like you. And I was like, oh, cool. Um, that was October. Um, applications for camp open usually January to be a volunteer, January or February. And I had sort of disappeared off of uh, social media at that point. So when I came back in like March, he was like, where have you been, dude? And uh, so he got me to apply. And that summer... Um, I started volunteering at Camp Del Corazon. Um, I don't know. I've been volunteering with now. I'm sure you've had other people here talking about Camp Del Corazon, uh, but uh, it's a, a nonprofit that specializes in taking kids seven to seventeen with congenital heart disease to a cost-free residential summer camp. And so I vol- and it takes place on Catalina Island. So I volunteered and I went over to the island of. Been doing it for this is my eleventh year, and uh, I think after my third year, uh, I'd been hearing about this program called Pace. That's part of Camp Del Corazon. Pace is a young adult program for young adults between the ages of eighteen and twenty-five who also have CHD. Um, they don't have to have come from the camp community; they can come from anywhere. And at that time. The woman who is the executive director of camp now, uh, Penny Lane, was the program director at camp, and she was also the program director of, excuse me, uh, of Pace. And I asked her, I was like, hey, is there room for me? And she's like, yeah, we need more guys. And so it took me a couple years. Unfortunately, I had a year where uh, both my father and my wife's father uh, passed away within uh, a couple weeks of each other and so that prevented us from from being able to volunteer with pace that year uh, but the next year I volunteered and after a couple um, after being a what we call an advisor at pace for a couple years um, Penny Lane was moving out of moving up to the executive director position and I said hey I can take over the program director positionship and she said that would be great and I've been the program director of the PACE program ever since. Wow. Wow, Gio. And it's honestly the best thing that I do. Yeah. It really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. I, it's hard for me to put into words. Um, and part of it is that the, the, the things that we do with the PACE program and, you know, watching young adults grow in maturity and find find a direction for their lives it's, it's all really subtle work that you don't necessarily see all at once and but it's still you see it over years and it's really amazing and you know i try to be humble and not say well that was me but you know you can't help but feel that maybe you, have, you helped you, you know you showed all these young adults that someone with the same challenges that they can can do something with their lives yes they're not relegated to being a patient for the rest of their lives Mm-hmm. Absolutely, Gio. Uh, it's 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 important to uh, to feel 
proud about what you do because um, because you really are changing and impacting so many lives uh, with pace uh, and um, just just being able to have people, young adults, uh, meet every uh, meet so many different people who have gone through similar circumstances. It's it's really important what you do. Thank you. Uh, thank you. It really, it really, it's really great to hear that. Um, it's even yeah. It's it's great even when, especially the 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 pacers that come from outside of the camp community, they come and say, "Wow, I've never met somebody else who had something similar to what I've dealt with for my life." And <laughs> and I'm like, "Yeah, here's a community. Yeah, we're, we're so happy to have you." Mm-hmm. Wow. Yes. Thank you so much for for all you do with Pace and um, the adult congenital heart community. Um, is there anything else you would like to share? Um, the only thing that you know, I, I saw this question. And I tried to think about it. Is that is that I remember. Um, one time, I, I, I would go back to the, the CTICU every once in a while, and usually I'll bring like cupcakes or something for everybody in there. Because those people there, they took. I remember seeing nurses and med techs cry um, when they would walk past my room and they saw that I was awake. Mm-hmm. Um, those people put a lot of emotion and a lot of effort into keeping me alive because that month of August, I was very close to death for much of it. Um, and now I've completely forgot what, forgotten where I was going with this. Um, what I wanted to say is that, so several years later, I was back at the CTICU and the transplant community, the coordinator said to me, wow, you, you don't get a break, do you? And what I'd been talking about is just sort of like the rough things that had been going on in my life. I had broken up with the girlfriend that I was with when I was in the hospital. I was having struggling with employment. And it's true. It it, it doesn't end. Mm -hmm. You know, that's the thing is like you, you have something like this happen to you and all those normal struggles of life with relationships and jobs and all that stuff, it's still there. Um, and it can feel like a lot, um, cause now it's just sort of like exponential. That's what it's always felt like me. It's like, not only, um, do you have to deal with like the everyday crap that everybody else has to deal with, you also have this, uh, you know, sort of, sort of Damocles, the sort of Damocles is mm-hmm. like this from where it's this guy who had a sword just hanging over his head um, that would drop at any time. And but despite that, what I'm really trying to say is that, you know, your, your life doesn't have to revolve around this hard stuff. You can still <laughs> do really great things. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I a couple years ago, I tried to hike the John Muir Trail by myself. The John Muir Trail is 211 miles. You know, 
It starts in Yosemite, ends at the summit of Mount Whitney. I had bad luck, but I'm going to try again next year. Mm. It's it, it's amazing what we can do. Yeah. You just have even yourself. Absolutely. And keep trying. Yes. Yes. Uh, I think that's the number one reason why we survive uh, all of our obstacles is because we have the motivation to just keep trying and not give up. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming on to my podcast. This was sure. such an inspiring story, and I'm really excited to share this, Gio. Okay, great. Thank I you. Hope-